Let me just have us stand as we pray this morning. Father, I just come before you today with gratitude and thanksgiving for your presence and for your word. And now, Lord, I pray as we are in your presence, as we hear your word, Lord, may we respond to you, Father. May you give us ears, as, you're, as the scriptures say, to hear what you are saying. And really, that expression is about obeying. It's about doing. It's about uh, taking these things to heart, Father. Because when we do what you ask us to do, it's for our good. It always benefits us. It's a good thing for us. And so, Lord, I pray today that you will speak to some of the issues in our hearts. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, in all of our lives, there come moments of amazing decisions. And they actually determine the direction of our lives. And I don't think we realize every day we're making choices and we're making decisions. And they're actually either... uh, enhancing our lives or they're diminishing our lives. And what we are doing today, every decision we make is going to impact our tomorrow. Now, I think there's, we're often tempted to choose what appears to be the broad road, the road that beckons us to travel on it. It makes all kinds of promises, like this is convenient, it's successful, this may give you a measure of notoriety or fame, promise prosperity. And then there's another road. I think there's only two paths. The other road, less traveled. It has challenge, obstacle, difficulty, and the rewards are not so readily seen. The price for the broad road is awful a simple compromise, a simple accommodation to a set of values that we somehow justify in our minds. And I can think of a couple of places in my own life's journey how these elements came along and really affected my future. For example, I eventually went to Bible college. I think it was 1977. Yeah, that was the fall, uh, the spring of 1977. I started in the in a trimester system at the third trimester. So immediately I finished the trimester, and then it was summertime, and so I moved back to the community I was in, and I got a job at a restaurant. I'd been cooking for a number of years. And I'd been there about a month or so when the manager approached me about assuming responsibility to take a managerial position in this chain of restaurants. In other words, if I would train with them, they'd give me my own store. And I still remember meeting with her and I said, as much as I appreciated the offer, you know, it's nice, they want me to be a manager, you know. I said, I really feel called to preach. And so at the end of the summer... I'm sticking to my game plan. I'm going back to college. Another fork in the road came after being in college for a number of years. By this time, I'd met Patty. We were married. We served at a a native reserve for four and a half years. And while we were serving there, you know, churches are really interesting places because you have people. And people can eventually get frustrated with things. And the pastor had, you know, I wasn't the pastor then. He had some, some family got upset with him about something or other. It didn't seem important. Probably wasn't that important. Um, and so they withheld their ties from the church. And they had for a while. And so they invited us because we knew this family because we, it's a small reserve and we got to know people beyond just the church. And they invited us to dinner one day and Patty and I went and they wanted to give us their ties that they'd been withholding from the church. Now, you have to understand, we're in college and we have no money. So this is a very real temptation. And I just said to them, listen, what's this money about? And they said, well, you know, we were withholding. You know, basically, they were telling us, this is our tithe. And I said, well, I'll tell you what I think you ought to do. I think you need to go talk to the pastor. I think you need to be reconciled to him. And I think you need to give the tithes to the church. And uh, they didn't do that, but we didn't take the money. And, you know, we can't control what people will do, but we can certainly control what we'll do. Now, why am I saying all of these things? I believe when we take little steps of obedience, it leads God to entrust us with greater responsibility. And we're constantly having these moments in our lives where we have to make 
decisions. And those decisions begin to develop the person you become. A number of years ago, there was a pastor in the former Soviet Union. You know, he had two secret police come to him and say, listen, we'll let you pastor this church and operate if you're prepared to give an account of the activities of various congregants in your church. And the pastor said, no, thank you. And they said, well, you'll have to understand we're going to send you to a new location called Siberia where you're going to go to work in a forced labor camp. And he said, fine and dandy. And so they sent him off to Siberia. And there he spent 10 years. But while he was in Siberia helping to build different communities, he was also finding other Christians and they were building churches. And eventually, at the end of his 10-year effort, he left behind him hundreds of churches in Siberia. So God had another plan. See, you have to understand, God is never thwarted by man's designs. You know, the enemy comes to us in so many ways to seduce us from living a victorious life with shades of compromise leading the way. You know, it was right from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, we see a serpent coming to a woman and challenging her. Did God really say that? Does God really mean that? And we get this kind of stuff all the time. You know, we're getting challenged all the time what the Bible says in our current culture. In John's gospel, we see that Jesus declared that it was the truth that brings freedom in our lives. Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, right? I'm just quoting John uh, chapter 8, verse 32. But you know what happens? Deception compromise that leads to sin, that eventually leads to bondage. Because we do not seemingly be able to put, you know, with a kind of follow where the dots go. And a lot of times what happens is we don't see how our sin over here is creating a problem over there. We don't see the, the route right back to what initially caused the consternation and problem. So we are battling in our present culture with the issue of truth. But we need to remember that this has always been the crux of the battle. We know from John's gospel that Jesus said, I am the truth. And so it's surrounding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And when you and I put our trust in him each and every day, what happens is he empowers us to live what I will call a non-compromised life. And we're going to look at, you know, compromise. You know, why is this such a big issue? What's Jesus' attitude? You know, because let's face it, compromise can be a good thing. Compromise in relationships can be a good thing, right? If you're going to be married, you're going to have to make compromises. Or otherwise, you're not going to be married. That's true. So compromise, I'm not saying it's always a bad thing. But there are places when compromise is not a good thing. And we're going to see exactly where that is. Uh, So here's how, you know, in our desire, I think, to relate to our culture, we go to one of two extremes. We have the one extreme where, as Christians, we're going to block everybody out of our lives. You know, we're kind of back to what, you know, Patty and I used to sing this hymn in the Indian church. It was so great. Hold the fort. You know. Can you guys see the irony in this song? You know, we're singing in a, you know, a North American Indian church, hold the fort. You know, I'm just thinking, usually the Indians were on the outside of the fort. I, I don't just, my mind was, you know, sometimes we sing funny songs, but I knew what the premise of the song was. We're going to hang on, Jesus, till you come back. You know, it's hold the fort, I'm coming. In other words, you know, let's hang in there until Jesus makes it. And so, you know, when you sing that song, you almost get the idea that the church is on the defense, Right? But, you know, the Bible doesn't teach that. As a matter of fact, that's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Listen to what Jesus says. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How many know gates are kind of a stationary thing? And I get the impression from that text is that the church is invading the, you know, the culture and is actually bringing people into the kingdom of God. So I, my picture of the church is not defense, it's offense. You know, but that song almost brings it the opposite way. But I think there's a lot of Christians, you know, we don't want to be contaminated by the things of this world. So we have this beautiful idea we're going to insulate ourselves from all the bad stuff in the world, right? And a lot of Christians, that's their whole mentality. I can go down and talk about how we do those kinds of things, but that's not my message today. But on the other side, here's the other part of the problem, uh, is the other extreme is that not only do we, are, we, are, we, are we not only listening to the culture, but we're actually embracing the ideas of the culture. 
that there is no absolute truth. And we live in a culture today that there's relativism, which means that, you know, there's no absolutes and everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes, basically. And there's a high degree of toleration in our culture. We'll tolerate all kinds of stuff. The only thing we can't tolerate is, you know, is uh, the truth. We can't tolerate that. Because we don't really believe that there's an absolute truth. That's part of our problem in our culture. You know, the early church <clears throat> was actually living in a time much like our own. <clears throat> Excuse me. They were a minority in a diverse culture with all kinds of different ideas about life and God. Doesn't that sound, to sound like today? And so my, my premise today is how did this church respond and how should we respond if we're living in a similar context as they were? Which churches in the minority position and the prevailing attitudes are different than what the church is, is teaching. D.A. Carson, who by the way is a great Canadian theologian, New Testament scholar says, and I'm going to paraphrase, he says, one might have thought that the world of many gods, see now you have to understand the first century, there was very few atheists. People believed in many gods. They were spiritual. They were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. And it says, the culture would have had no trouble adding one more religion, but this religion, they came, especially the one that came to be called Christianity, but Christianity proved impossible for the what we would call pagans, non-Christians, to swallow precisely because Christianity was absolutist. In other words, they claimed that this was the way and the only way to God. Now, who said that? Well, Jesus did. Jesus in John's gospel says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And Jesus basically said, hey, listen, I'm God in the flesh. And I have a plan for humanity, so I left heaven, came down. I'm dying for the sins of all of humanity. I'm making the ultimate sacrifice so that humanity can have a right relationship with God. And I'm the only way that you have access to, to know God. It's a very strong, absolutist message. How many say that's true? You know, and it gets us into trouble because, it, it, you know, a lot of people get indignant by this message. And that's exactly what D.A. Carson goes on to say. It insisted that salvation came exclusively through faith in Jesus Christ. And this struck pagans as narrow-minded. Now, how many of us have had that thrown at us? We are very narrow-minded, Right? And by the way, we've always had that label. We've worn it for 20 centuries. We're in our 21st century. It says, uh, without exception, all of Christianity's earliest pagan critics insisted that there's no, there's no one way to the divine. In other words, there's many roads to God. Has anybody ever heard that before? And when all the world is appealing to be tolerant of different beliefs, the insistence that there is only one way of salvation may be the mark of a faithful witness. Not the least when those who bear the witness are willing to suffer and die for their confession of the truth. This is very powerful stuff. In other words, the early disciples were willing to stand out, speak up in spite of what it would cost them. They said, this is it, guys. This is the only way to God. And a lot of people got upset about that, and some people lost their lives. Not just, you know, they got snobbed. Not only did they get intellectually browbeated, they got physically manhandled, and some of them actually gave up their lives. That's pretty strong. Now, today we're going to look at a word to the third church of these seven churches. It's a church at Pergamum. And Pergamum was actually the royal city. It was the capital city. It wasn't the most populated city. It wasn't the most famous city in Asia, but it was the imperial city of Asia. And so it would be like, you know, if Ephesus is Calgary today, Pergamum would be Edmonton. Does everybody get it? That's where the... I'm just giving you an analogy. <clears throat> that would be where the, where the capital is in Asia. And so now... It was the imperial city, and it had Roman authority to it. And so we pick up the words of Jesus. Now, Jesus, every time he speaks to one of these churches, 
Now you have to remember, this is the vision John has. John sees, you know, these angels in the hand of God. They're speaking out their message to the church. And here's the message to the church at Pergamum. And then we're going to apply it to our current situation. Verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now immediately when I read that sharp double-edged sword, I think of a text from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says the word of God is a sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus is coming back with a sword. Actually, a sword speaks of authority. We think of the, the state in Romans chapter 13 as having, bearing the sword. In other words, they have the authority to punish. They have the authority to execute judgment. And so William Ramsey now points something out that's very interesting. He says, in Roman estimation, the sword was the symbol of the highest order of official authority with which the proconsul of Asia was invested. The right of the sword was roughly equivalent to what we would call the power of life and death. In other words, they had the authority to determine if somebody lived or died. That's pretty strong, isn't it? See, we can't relate to this in Canada because we don't even have the death sentence anymore. And, you know, when we go to court, there's all kinds of other things going on. When you went to a Roman uh, trial, you were put in prison, and then immediately you were brought before the tribunal or the, the person, the proconsul, and they rendered a decision, and it could be life and death to you. And if it was death, you would go back to prison awaiting your execution. They didn't fool around. This is a totally different world, Okay. It says here, when the divine author addresses Pergamum in this character, his intention would be caught immediately by all of his Asian readers of the book of Revelation. He, Jesus, wields the power of life and death, which the people imagine to be vested in the proconsul of the province. In other words, Jesus says, hey, if these guys have authority over your physical body, I have authority over all of you. I have the authority of life and death over you. Eternal life and eternal death. That's pretty powerful authority. Jesus says, I'm the one that has the ultimate authority. And so we find a pattern again emerging in this third church where Jesus now is going to give them a word of commendation. In other words, he's going to affirm what they're doing right. He's going to say, yeah, you're doing some good things. He's going to try to encourage them. And then he's going to challenge them in the area that they're not doing so good. Now, if you really love somebody, you want to do both, right? You want to help them where they're going good. Say, yeah, good, keep doing that. And when they're messing up and they're destroying themselves, you want to say, hey, if I really care about you, I'm going to say, you got to stop doing this because it's destroying you and other people. Jesus is prepared to do that. And finally, he leaves us with a promise. If you'll do this, this is what's going to happen. If you'll do what I say. And so we're going to look, first of all, at um, things that we need to embrace and avoid in order to be faithful believers. In other words, what I'm really saying here today is, how can I be faithful in an unfaithful world? Or how can I live a holy life in an unholy world. How many say that's important stuff? How can I be like Jesus in a society that's rejecting Jesus? So I'm giving you pictures. And hopefully you're going to understand these amazing pictures today. So Jesus starts out that when we stand up for him in a challenging time, he honors us. We need to know that. And here he's commending the church at Pergamum because they were faithful to him in spite of the things that were coming at them. Here was a group of people who were living in a place of great spiritual opposition to the gospel. Evil was abounding, but they were maintaining their faith even at the expense of their lives. That's pretty intense, wouldn't you say? How many say, you know, I'm really signing up. I'm going all the way, Jesus, even if I have to lose my life. You know, most of us, when we start out, we didn't start out signing up for that. I have to be honest, when I first came to Jesus, I had no idea this was going to be the end of my self-life and the beginning of a brand new direction in life. I I had no idea that Jesus was going to take over my whole life. That I had to be willing to give up everything because he gave up everything for me. I had no understanding of that, but eventually I got that understanding. Here, we see that the church was now divided. It's interesting, the division. Emperor worship was dividing the church between those who were willing to compromise and those who were not. How many think that's very fascinating? Look at verse 13. I know where you live, 
where Satan has his throne. That's pretty strong language, okay? This is where the devil's camped, he's saying. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. How many think it's pretty strong language? You're going, I know where Satan's abiding. I know he's camped in your city. You got an enemy there. This is a very powerful adversary. In other words, Jesus says, you're in the imperial city, and as we're going to see, the, the emperor is considered. This is kind of an apocalyptic message, so coded language. What he's basically saying is the emperor who thinks he's a god and is having people worship him as a god is actually Satan. That's what Satan wants, is worship. And he's getting it through this emperor worship. Jesus is making this declaration. Now, the city... This ancient city of Pergamon is the modern city of Bergomos. Bergomos is just a little smaller than Red Deer. I mean, it has about 70,000 people today. A number of years ago, we went to this city. And it's, it, in the day of John, it was a far more significant city. It was at 150,000 people. By the way, an ancient city of 150,000 people, that's a very significant place. It was, an, it was an old city built on a high hill. And when we went to it here in 2000 and Five, I think it was, or maybe earlier. No, about that time. We went there, and the old city was built on the hillside, but the new city is actually built in the valley. And so there's nothing up there but ruins. And you get to go up top of this area, you drive up to this old area. And what they do is, it's filled with all kinds of um, various ruins of temples that were, you know where they worshipped these different gods, the different Greek gods. It was at Pergamum that the chief temple of Zeus was built in Asia. Also, Alispios, that, that's a, another god that was like in a serpent form, was considered the healing god, Alispios. And you see it even in our medical symbols now, the serpent wrapped around the staff, that's where it comes from, you know. At a later date, the Roman emperor, Caligula came to visit Pergamum and he went to that temple and was restored back to health. There was some power there. A coin was commemorated with the emperor adoring the god serpent of Pergamum. Can you imagine? So I'm just letting you know that these things really existed in the past. And so Jesus is actually speaking to real issues that were happening in that community. Now, he's commending these believers because they recognize that this was really, you know, the power of the evil one and that he had authority and they were not willing to bow down to that authority. So most scholars believe that Jesus' statement is actually speaking of emperor worship. And the throne speaks of authority and power. And a temple was built there uh, for Augustus in 29 AD, later one for Emperor Trajan, about 100 years later, and then Cerverus. And it was the center, as I said, of imperial worship. So the state had a religion which required worshipers to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. So William Ramsey, the archaeologist, says this. Here for the first time in the seven letters, this topic comes up. The suffering which had fallen to the lot of Smyrna, that city that we talked about last week, preceded chiefly from fellow citizens and above all from the people that were in the Jewish community who were upset because these Jews were now worshiping Christ and bringing in Gentiles. But the persecution that fell to the lot at Pergamum is clearly distinguished from that kind of suffering. In Pergamum, it took the suffering for the, na- um, for the name when Christians were tried in the proconsular court and confronted with the altern- alternative of conforming to the state religion or receiving immediate sentence of death. Can you imagine that? Yeah, brought up to the state, worship the Caesar. No, I think I'll pass on that. Thank you very much. Oh, that's okay. We're going to kill you now, you know? Or do you just say, well, you know, there's a bunch of people over here. There, That means nothing. You know, a lot of these pagans, they didn't really believe Caesar is God. I'll just worship it just like they do, but not consider it a God. I'll be okay then. I won't get killed. Okay? But the fact that Antipas is mentioned as being martyred in the city, Jesus, you know, brings his name out. It it suggests many scholars believe that was because he wasn't from that city. He was actually brought to the imperial city, and he was sentenced there, and he was killed. 
And they're all being commended now for being faithful. So here's what you need to understand. The church is divided. Can you imagine having a church split over, can, should we worship Caesar or not? You know, some of them say, hey, it's no big thing, worship Caesar, right? I can see the, you know, we just got to get, we got to get along with our neighbors. You know, they don't even believe Caesar's a God. Don't worry about it. You know, we don't have to believe Caesar's a God. We will just go along with it. And then we don't get killed. The other half of the church says, no, you're compromising. You can't worship Caesar as Lord. Jesus is Lord. They said, well, if you guys keep this up, your side's going to be perishing pretty fast. You know, we'll have the church to ourselves. You'll be all dying. You can see a little confrontation going on here. Jesus sends this message to them. But let me move on uh, to the second point. And it's simply, Jesus is now going to correct us. Even as he corrected them, what is he going to correct about towards us when we tolerate false teaching that leads to a compromised life. Because you can see now, wrong teaching does lead to wrong living. Wrong ideas lead to wrong uh, choices that we're going to make in life. So here's what happens. Uh, Even though the church was able to resist the outside pressure, they were struggling with internal problems. And that's what really destroys churches, by the way, is internal problems. It always destroys the church. So false teaching has a way of weakening the church's resolve. Tolerance and compromise were being preached that would eventually lead to the destruction of the church's vitality. And you can see that. And I'm going to bring out some examples here in a few minutes. In Revelation 2.14, it says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans, many believe, was the emperor worship. But let me just go back here and ask the question. Who is Balaam, and what was he teaching anyways? And the right answer is you've got to go to the Old Testament. So I'm not going to spend time there, but you can write this down. Numbers 22 to verse 20, chapter 25. Those four chapters gives you an idea of what's going on. Let me give you a synopsis. Balaam was hired by, excuse me, a king called Balak. Balak was concerned because there was a new people moving into his area called the Israelites. Remember, they were moving in to take over the promised land. Balak hires Balaam and says, tell you what you're going to do. Just curse these guys. And when you curse them, they'll be cursed, and that'll be the end of it. And so Balaam goes, no problem, happy to do it. He goes out there. The Spirit of God comes on him. He blesses them. Balak goes, "Uh, excuse me, you're supposed to bless us and curse them. He goes, I can only do what the Spirit of God does on me. And so he tries it again. Out he goes. Boom. He starts blessing the Israelites and cursing Balak's group. And, you know, Balak is not a happy camper, you know, and he says, I'll give you more money and all the rest of all the negotiations that are going on there. Finally, at the end, this happens four times. Finally, Balaam goes, forget me seeking the mind of God because God's not going to change his mind. I'll tell you how to defeat the Israelites. Real simple. Just tempt them to sin against their God and God will punish them. (laughs) Pretty interesting strategy. And that's exactly what they do. They end up, you know, these attractive young women who are worshiping Baal show up. And you have to understand something about the ancient religions. A lot of them had, you know, fertility rights. And there was a lot of, you know, sexuality involved and immorality. And so they got involved with these people. And they got involved with their religion. And boom, God was upset and thousands of people died because God was upset with them. So... What was the teaching of Balaam here at Pergamum? Well, the heretics were apparently teaching that there was nothing wrong with participating in the imperial cult since even most Romans did it out of civic duty rather than actual worship. Okay? So they were giving in and accommodating the pressure. And it was leading to a looser lifestyle. Now, we could go home right now and you go, oh, Interesting sermon about past history. How does that apply to us? Well, I don't think we're struggling with Caesar worship right now. That's not our biggest issue. But we could talk about some other areas in our life that I think would really divide us in a hurry. Let me give you an example. You want me to go there? I did in the first service. 
you know, really got the energies, juices flowing in this place. So let me give it to you, what I said to the first service people. When we look at our culture today, there's a tremendous battle over sexual mores going on in the church. So I'm going to just go there because I think the church is divided today. I think there are teachers that are buying into and accommodating the teachings of our culture. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. First of all, there's a guy by the name of Peter Lee. He and 59 other Episcopalian bishops voted to approve the appointment of a, a certain individual, an openly gay man, as a bishop of the church, Episcopalian church in a state. Okay? And this is what he said. This is his justification for doing so. He said, if you must make a choice between heresy and schism, always choose heresy. Well, excuse me, I have a problem with that. Because Jesus is now telling us he's a person of no compromise. And you, need, you and I need to know this. As a matter of fact, I want to look at a very difficult text right now. It's found in Matthew chapter 10. We probably don't like this one. But it says this. Jesus is speaking, chapter 10, verse 34. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. We have a lot of critics that say, see, Christianity is violent. Because Jesus said this, okay? But watch what he says. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus is anticipating conflict. Everybody needs to know that, all right? So Jesus does not, you know, if if you're a Christian, you think, I know I'm a good Christian when there's no conflict in my life. No, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, as a matter of fact, I know you're a Christian because you're going to experience a measure of conflict. And many times it's going to come up with people that are the closest to you. Now, New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce writing on, this is one of the hard sayings of Jesus. This is what he says about what Jesus said. One thing is certain, Jesus did not advocate conflict. Jesus is not promoting conflict. He just said, you're going to have it. He taught his followers to offer no resistance or retaliation when they were attacked or ill-treated. But when Jesus spoke of tension and conflict within a family, he probably spoke from personal experience. And in my series on Mark, I told you that his family thought he was crazy. Did you know that? His family members, his brothers, said, you know, something wrong with Jesus. They thought he was insane. I'm serious. So when Jesus said that he came to bring not peace but a sword, he meant that this would be the effect of his coming and not the purpose of his coming. Jesus came not to condemn the world but to save the world. But he knew that because he was pure and righteous and light and he knew that evil and darkness would hate the light. So he knew there would be conflict. And so he's preparing us to experience conflict in our life. Okay? Heads up. If you're a Christian, you'll experience measures of conflict. Anybody have any experience of that? Oh, some of you. Matter of fact, last Sunday when I was preaching, I said, if you live a godly life, you're going to suffer persecution. That's conflict, folks. That's conflict. I'm just pointing that out. Okay, now, what I didn't tell you earlier when I read those beautiful verses from Matthew 11, remember that? You know what really stood out to me this morning in my quiet time was this verse, Matthew eleven six. This follows those verses I read. It says, and if anyone is not offended because of me, he is blessed. In other words, Jesus said, things are going to happen that I'm going to do that people are going to get offended by. But if you don't get offended, you'll be blessed. See, John was offended because Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah he anticipated him to be. So he was offended. But when I read this verse, I went, you know, I don't think I've ever read this this way before. I don't remember reading it this way. So I went to another translation, because this is my devotional translation. So I read it in the NIV. It says, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. How many go offended, fall away? Boy, it almost sounds different, doesn't it? I just happen to have a Greek New Testament. I had a funny feeling the word there was a word that I thought it might be, because I've kind of messed a little bit with Greek. And boy, was I ever delighted to find the word I thought it was, was the word. Whoa, I must be learning something, Mark. <laughs> you know, 
And it's a word we get our English word scandalized. In other words, Jesus says, if you're not scandalized because of me, you're going to be a blessed person. In other words, you could be scandalized by this. Or, and when I started doing a little more digging, it says, this word literally means to be put a snare in the way, to put a snare in the way. In other words, Jesus says, sometimes, you know, the thing I do is going to actually cause you to feel like it's a snare to you, or it's going to cause you to stumble. That's why the NIV translate, fall away. In other words, sometimes when we stand up for what Jesus is about, we stand up for the truth, it's going to cause you grief. Okay? Now, why am I saying this? I'm saying this because, listen, the church today is embracing the cultural values when it comes to sexuality. I'm going to give you an idea what I mean by that. Real simple. The Bible teaches, Hebrews 13.4, that there's only one place you can participate in sexual activity. It's in marriage. There is no other place as far as God's concerned. Oh, we can do it. But God says that's not a wise thing to do. I'm serious about this. But we have a very liberated understanding of sexuality today. So we're even telling our young people, you know, just get condoms. You know, and then this is what I mean about we have a hard time with the dots connecting. Let me give it to you. Here it is. You're 15 years old. You're dating and you're having sex with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. And later, you know what? And so what happens? Some of the ramifications we get sexually transmitted diseases. We, have, we don't have the emotional capacity to handle this kind of behavior. People are breaking up. They're sleeping with each other. And then all of a sudden we have things like escalating sexually transmitted disease as a problem in our province. And number two, we have a whole bunch of young people committing suicide. And the society's going, what's wrong? Hello? Connect the dots, neighbor. Go all the way back to what God said. Here's the healthy boundaries. And then we have a hard time with our marriages today because you know what? We're not, you know, we, we're, we're so locked into sex as the big item. When we, you know what? Here's the problem. Most Christian couples don't even have time of prayer together. We're not even connecting on a spiritual level, let alone an emotional and social level. And therefore, we can't understand why we're not experiencing physical joy in, with one another. It starts... At the top level, folks, that's where real intimacy begins. But most of us haven't figured that out. But God is telling us the stuff. Are you catching on what I'm talking about? And then we have a whole culture today that says, you know what? I'm going to speak on, you know, like homosexuality and the whole issue here. Because our culture says everybody's okay. That's just the way we're born. And I'm going to go, yeah, you're right. You are born. You have a predisposition. Like all of us in this room, there's not one person in this room that does not have what we would theologians call an Adamic nature. You go, what's that? That's the fallen nature. That's the sinful nature. We all have it. And when we come into the world, we have a predisposition towards a whole bunch of sin. And some of us in this room, we struggle with all kinds of different things. Some of you struggle with, you know, maybe lying or your struggle with, you know, pornography or you're struggling with, you know, ex, you know addictive behavioral patterns, obsessive, you know, situations. You're filled with anxiety and worry or maybe you overeat to compensate. I'm just going to go down a whole list. Man, pastor, you're just really invading our lives. I'm going, no, that's the nature of sin. It invades all of our lives. And we all have this predisposition toward it. And so some people are attracted to people of the same sex. And that's a predisposition. So when, when a person, a gay person said to me, Pastor, how would you feel if I came to your church? I'd say, it's awesome. I love it. Because I love people that are gay. I don't have a problem with people that are gay. What I have a problem with is us acting on our predisposition towards sin. And so what I, he says, what would you require of me? I'd just say abstinence. Just like I would ask all the young people who are not married to their boyfriend or girlfriend to practice abstinence. That's in the Bible, folks. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Read the scriptures. And now we've got Christians that are so liberated that young people are living together and they're both in the church and mom and dad thinks it's wonderful. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Do you know most of the marriages that I perform today are with people that are living together? And the smaller portion are those that are still living apart and living, and and to find two young people that are trying to be pure, that's, you know, those are the people I really laud and applaud because that's what the way it was supposed to be. God designed it that way. So you wouldn't have all the emotional baggage and junk that so many people have because of sin. But you know, God's smart. He's the one that designed this, not us. But we have so bought into this idea that, you know, the cultural concept of sexuality is right. We get it bombarded day in and day out. And yet God has a totally different standard. And he does that because he loves us. And he knows what's best for us. And it's this kind of stuff. See, you know, we can sit down here and say, oh, you know, what does this have to do with what we were talking about a few minutes ago, Pastor? Everything. Because the church today is compromised. And so when we're compromised, we don't have a message. See, when you're compromised, you're not salt anymore. When you're compromised, you're not light anymore. You're not different anymore. And the Bible says that we need to be salt. And salt, if it's lost its, its properties, Jesus says it has no value. And if you and I are not, I love that text in Philippians where he's talking about, and he says, you are like shining stars holding out the word of life. And how many know stars are framed in a sphere of darkness? And that's the light that people are having their path illuminated by. And when you and I are shining stars, when you and I are living a non-compromised life, we are actually revealing who God really is to our society. How important is this today? You see, I could talk about imperial worship and we go, doesn't connect. But when I apply it to where the church today is compromising with the world, all of a sudden we're polarized in this room. There's some of you who are saying, Pastor, I don't agree with your position. You need to study the Bible. And you need to get on God's permission and you need to stand up for God's permission. Not in an argumentative way. Do you think God hates people that sin? Of course not. The Bible says that Christ commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, you know, God did. Christ died for us. God did not come into the world to condemn us, but to save us. And God is not here because we've made mistakes you know, to punish us. That's not what his goal is. You know what, he's, you know what the way out is? It's real simple. What does it say here? What's the promise? It says in verse 16, repent. Repent. You go, that sounds like a nasty word, pastor. You know, repent simply means change your mind. Agree with God. That's all he's telling you to do. Just change your mind, agree with God, and then live out your new way of thinking. See, Paul writes this in the book of Romans. He says, do, not, no, do no longer be conformed to this world and its value system. Don't conform to this world and its value system. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now you'll know what God's will is. Do you know our world doesn't know right from wrong? They think they do. They don't. And you know what? Who determines what's right and who determines what's wrong? And my argument is God determines what is right and what is wrong. We're so confused today. Listen to this. We walk around. There was a day when sick was a bad thing, but now you tell people that's sick, which (laughs) means that's a good thing, you know? Or you have, you know, people walking around today going, that's wicked, You know, there was a day, and there still is, when I read my Bible and God says, that's wicked. That's not a good thing. But you got a whole bunch of people walking around going, wicked. Like, that's a great thing. I think we're a little confused. Don't you? You know, I don't want to have a bunch of knowledge of evil. I want to have a pure mind. I want to have a healthy mind. we got a lot of people today... And I'm going to say some things here. I know I'm going to get in trouble. That's okay. A lot of our mental illness is because our minds have been corrupted. 
We need to renew our minds. We need a healing in our minds. We need God to begin to do a work of grace in our minds. We need to know the mind of God. We need to know the mind of Christ. What was the promise? And I'll close with this really simply. He says, if you overcome, he says, you know what I'm going to give you? I'm going to give you the manna. I love that. What's this hidden manna that he's talking about here? Well, it's simply, what was manna? Manna was bread from heaven, right? But Jesus said, I'm the bread from heaven. I love that. Isn't that great? Jesus said, they asked him for a miraculous sign. Then we will, then you will, uh, and then you will give what we may see it. What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate man in the desert. It is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, that it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Who's that? Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Isn't that neat? Now, he's not saying you got to chew on Jesus' physical body. You know, he's saying you have to receive my life. And every day you have to receive this life and it will sustain you. Wow, isn't that great? And then he says, I'll give you uh, a, a stone, a white stone. What was the significance with the white stone with their names written on it? Well, simply this. Pergamum was trying to create a library. The papyra came from Egypt. You know where the great library was in Alexandria? The Egyptians got a little nervous, so they decided to stop sending papyra. So the Pergamum people started writing on parchment, animal skins. But how many know those things are impermanent? Papyra and parchment eventually perish. But, you know, stone has a more enduring element to it. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's basically saying, you know what? Most theologians believe that this it's the idea of an eternal nature of the name. White speaks of acquittal. The new name speaks of being a new person, a person who is free. Isn't that beautiful? So what is Jesus saying to us? Listen, guys. Don't live compromised lives. That's what he's telling us today. Don't live a compromised life. Live for me. And when you do, you will be free. And if you disobey me, you will suffer. Not because God hates you, but because our sin produces bad things in our lives. And not only in our lives, but in the lives of many other people. So let's stand today. Was that good meddling? Did you have a little idea? You know, sometimes we read these stories and we go, oh, you know, these guys are compromisers. But we don't see ourselves as compromisers. You know what my point is? It's so easy to compromise. Come on now. It's so easy to compromise. And we just justify it. And we make excuses for it. You know, better when we've failed to feel grief-stricken and feel bad about it. That's a better position to be in. At least you got conviction. Because if you keep doing it long enough, eventually you don't feel anything. You don't even think it's wrong anymore because you don't feel anything. That does not make it right. God is the one that determines what is right. And I will make this guarantee to you. If you will do what God says, you will be in a far better place. You will live a far better life. You will live a victorious life. But let me just say this. You and I can't do this on our own. See, we need the Spirit of God. Amen? And so with every head bowed here today, you know, some of you, you know, just be honest with me before Almighty God. Say, you know, Pastor, God has spoken to me this morning. I've been living a compromised life. Just raise your hand. That's you. But I want to change my mind today. I want to change my mind today. I don't want to live a compromised life. I want to live a pure life. I want to live a spirit-empowered life. I want to agree with Jesus. I want to live a victorious life. I want to live a forgiven life. 
There's not one person in this room that can say we've done this all perfectly. We've all failed at some point. We've all made compromises, but we're saying, Lord, help us. We want to do the right thing. We want to serve you in the right way. Just because there's Christian leaders today saying that this is okay or that's okay, let me tell you something. The Bible says it's not okay. I don't care who says it. Read the Bible. It's pretty clear. Let's just take it for what it says. Say, Lord, I'm going to believe your report. I'm going to listen to you. And you know what's going to happen? He's going to bring victory in your life. That's the most important thing. And you know what the neat thing is? You're going to be a shining star. I love that. What a great analogy. How many here? You know, we, 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 we value the movie star or the sports star. Jesus is looking on earth and he goes, there's my star. That's my star right there. I want to be one of those stars. I want to be one of Jesus' stars on earth. Amen? Holding the word of life to a world that's starving. Holding out light to a world in darkness. Bringing salt to a world that's decaying. In other words, being a preserving force. And holding back the tide of evil. That's the kind of star I want to be. And that's the kind of star God wants us to be this morning. How many here say, I want to be a star for Jesus? I want to be a star for Jesus, holding out that word of life. That's me, Pastor. I got my hand up too. I want to be a star. Matter of fact, Lord, make me a superstar for you, right? Amen. Let's go all the way. Let's live that martyred life martyred life, that's actually what a witness is, a martyr. That means I'm dying to myself in order for Christ to flow through my life in a more dramatic way. So Lord, I thank you for all these superstars that I'm looking at today. These are the true stars on the planet. And Lord, where we have failed you in the past and where maybe we are failing you today, but we recognize that we're not going to argue, we're not going to defend, we're just going to acknowledge compromised. We've been compromised. Lord, we ask that you'd forgive us, that you would cleanse us, that you would strengthen us, you would empower us to live a life of holiness in a world that's unholy, to live a life of freedom in a world that's filled with bondage, to live a life filled with hope where there's been so much despair and hopelessness. Lord, to have a standard of righteousness in a world that celebrates debauchery and decadence and decay. Lord, I pray that you will help us to stand out and make a difference in our broken world. And help us, Lord, not to be critical or judgmental, but Lord, to be loving and kind with those who disagree with us outside of the church. And for those that are within the church, Lord, I pray that they'll repent of their wrong thinking that we will become intolerant towards sin in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.